Hello, friends, and welcome to the Optimized Advisor Podcast, where we focus on optimizing the well-being and best practices of insurance and financial professionals today. On this show, our objective is to help you optimize your life, optimize your profession, and learn from other optimized advisors. I'm your host, Scott Heinela. We hope you enjoy the show. Bill Bonk, welcome to the Optimized Advisor Podcast, Regional Director and and certainly founder, correct, of BBIM, an affiliate office of Producer Choice. Well, thank you, Scott. Thanks for having me on. It's uh, definitely something we've been looking forward to doing for a long time, and uh, I very much uh, look forward to uh, having the conversation today. Yeah, this is our second or third attempt at making this happen from a scheduling standpoint, so I appreciate your patience, and uh, good things come to those who wait. Yeah, it's amazing how life life just keeps happening out there, right, Scott? You know, computer issues and people and interruptions. I think it's a, something we all have to, uh, we all deal with in the financial services profession. Nobody would have ever forecasted that insurance business and being in the insurance business would be so riveting and exciting, enticing. Well, yeah. No, you wouldn't want to be a part of it. it. It can be, it can be exciting. It can be dull and boring too, but uh there's um there's a I get a lot of joy out of being in this industry and I hope people who are listening to this and uh, are watching this uh, have moments in time that uh, they enjoy what they do as well and perhaps maybe after listening today a little bit they'll pick up a thing or two that uh, can help them. That's always our goal in any of these conversations. So <clears throat> with that, I'm gonna a fun fact. Do you know who the wealthiest person in the world is today? You know, you always kind of want to keep going to like the Bill Gates and the uh, Warren Buffetts of the world, but I'm sure it's probably some oil tycoon or someone out there. No, Scott, I, I don't know who the richest person in the world is. Okay, so it's Elon Musk, who has now exceeded $300 billion of net worth, predominantly through Tesla and SpaceX. Next fun fact, and most in- interesting fun fact, did you know that that is now more than Jeff Bezos and Mark Zuckerberg combined? Wow. Wow. And hey, tell me tell me if you know this. Is it true that Tesla still hasn't, as a company, made money yet? No, I, they, no I, they, they are now profitable, well, I believe. Not profitable. I'm not a Tesla analyst, but I believe they are now, <clears throat> they are now profitable as a company. Well, kudos, kudos to Mr. Musk. I mean, that's remarkable. He's not even that old. He's pretty young to be. I mean, who's going to be the world's first trillionaire? Well, he's That'll be crazy. He's on, he's on his way. Like, There's a lot of different ways to make money in our world. And I think you just have to give hats off to the entrepreneurs that are out there and the, uh, the roads that they've paved i mean you ever see that uh, show on the i think it's the history channel the men who built america oh i love that show love that show you know that's that was, a that's american history right there you know it's it, i think it's embedded into our culture and i'm certainly not going to sit here and say that uh i have done anything even remotely as successful as what uh some of our forefathers have but i would go as far as to say that i much appreciate everyone who's made sacrifices for our country and for the industry we have to work within, because uh, there were a lot of pioneers, 
that built, um, for example, like independent wholesaling, field marketing, NMO, FMO, independent distribution. I mean, it didn't really exist 40, 50 years ago. It's something that came out of uh, the industry and emerged and developed. So it's, uh, this the, we definitely ride some of the coattails of innovators before us, but that doesn't necessarily mean that we're not innovating and, and bringing value and growing as well. But uh, yeah, so uh, love to have some of Elon Musk's net worth. That'd be fun. But, you know, and, and, and using that as a context and a segue, and you touch on it a little bit is, you know, you and I both wish that we were in the position to be pioneers of, of the annuity and, you know, insurance wholesale business. Unfortunately, we weren't. However, in our small worlds and in our small practices, we are entrepreneurs. We do build and, and practice and work in our own businesses. And, and there's challenges and trials, tribulations that we're faced with on a regular basis. Growth is a challenge, I think, in any business right now and hiring and just capital money management. And there's a lot of things that go into that. You know, so segueing into how you got into the business which I'm not even sure I know the story. You know, my, my, I think everybody has a story on how they find or how the annuity business, annuity world finds them or they find it. Because uh, I don't know if it's preordained in, in many people, but um, I got into the business in 2000, 2001, uh, you know, with, with no previous knowledge, experience, or interest on any level. But again, I, I don't know how you, I don't know your story. So how did you find this? wonderful space to be well well thank you for asking scott and um and is like many people love to talk about myself and i, I do have a story but i think <laughs> i think it's, it's worthwhile to bring up i don't know if it's you talking about yourself but but or not taking it in that context it's but i think there's examples and lessons to be learned in many people's story and what i find in so many cases is is how people grow themselves through an industry or within a specific trade there's right. lessons there's life lessons there agreed and i, I was a i think you uh, said it very well there i would just add that you know remembering your story remembering where you came from um many of us in the industry have come from humble roots and have earned our way to where we are today and i think it's important to not forget where you came from and Part of the culture that our team um, deploys day in and day out is a result of how we came to be. Uh, so, I mean, I grew up in Farmington, Connecticut, went to an old boys boarding school, I went old farms in Connecticut, then went to St. Lawrence University in upstate New York and studied economics and had this dream that I always wanted to be a stockbroker. After, if you know where St. Lawrence University is, I mean, it's like on the Canadian border. I, I mean, do not. It's like you go beyond the Adirondacks, then you enter into the Arctic tundra, you put on like an extra coat, and then you just keep driving into like this flatland of, um, of rural America. I mean, it, it was a, beautiful. Yeah, man. I mean, it was a great place to go to school. It was a beautiful campus. The education was top notch. Um, we did have access to Canada. We had access to um, other resources around there. A lot of outdoor type of stuff. It was it was a fun place. Great Greek life. I, I couldn't say enough good things about St. Lawrence. I got an excellent education. Um, 
being in economics and uh, business management minor. And like I said, I always wanted to be a stockbroker. Mm -hmm. After I graduated, it was like, all right, I've been up in the woods. Now let's go live in a city. And a lot of uh, fraternity brothers and friends of mine moved to like either New York or Chicago or Boston. So I visited New York, Chicago, and Boston. And uh, growing up in pharmacy, Connecticut, the challenge I have with Chicago is I couldn't afford to get on a plane to go home for the holidays. And the challenge I have in New York City was just, I mean, it's true even today. It's just extremely expensive to live there. Right. Um, and coming out of college back, and I'm going back to, to the year 2000 now, it's not like today where you can get a really good starting salary coming out of college. I mean, back then you were lucky if you got 25,000 bucks or 30 grand coming out of college. Right. Uh, so I decided to move to Boston and I started interviewing at the major wirehouses. Um, make a long story short, I... Um, was offered a position at Payne Weber, which is now UBS Financial, it was right before uh, the merger, and they had a training program in a training branch at 265 Franklin Street in uh, Boston. Uh, so I got the job. I was one of 16 people in the training branch, and, and back then they had a very well-defined process to bring people up into the industry. There, well, you had to get your Series 7, you had to get your Series 66, which is your 65 and your 6 combined. You had to get your life and health. Actually, the life and health was optional. Um, they get, they paid you to study, um, and then there was product knowledge mixed in. They required you to build a business plan, which was hard for me back then because I didn't have family money. I didn't have a network of people who I knew that I knew who had money. So I didn't have money to do seminars. It was really just like, all right, well, I guess I'm just going to hammer the phones. Um, maybe I watched Boiler Room too many times or, or <laughs> Wall Street, um, and I'm going to make it happen. I was very determined and driven uh, back then in my 20s. I mean, I would say I still am to this day, but you know, back then when I got uh, through the training and started in production, I, mean, I was making like 250 dials a day. And $250 a day, the, the model was, all right, well, I'm just going to call um, small business owners in the morning uh, for like SEP, simple 401k plans, uh, put some you know personal investment, call retirees in the afternoon, talk about long-term care planning and talk about um, asset management and income retirement, uh, income for retirement, and then uh, reach out to baby boomers at night. Um, and tried to capture people when they would answer the phone. And it was a it was a really hard time, man. I mean, uh, for those of you who are listening, think back to 2000, 2001, 2002 in U.S. equity markets. That was right around the time where the Janus Fund was doing awesome and we were trading Sun Microsystems. And, and then all of a sudden it all just fell apart. You know, and back then when the Dow went down 300 or 400 points in a day, it was significant. Um, mm -hmm. So it was a, a real challenging time in the market. It was also a period of time in the industry where the transactional based business model, they were trying to phase it out. They were trying to move everything into a, like a one, one and a half percent type wrap fee kind of environment. And this was probably, I'm not sure where the RIA business was really starting to take off, but it did exist back then, I believe. Um, but in the wirehouse space, they were just trying to move everybody to like a managed money fee for service type platform, which when you're first starting out is hard. Yeah. I mean, 
the, the, to UBS's credit, they did allow us to get like the first year's fee up front, but still it's making 1% on the money. Right. Um, so I admit, you know, I struggled. I mean, there were months where I did $10,000 or $15,000 of compensation, um, but my payout was 40%. Right. Right. And when you, you, know, you start doing the numbers on that, it was hard. I mean, I remember I had to call my grandfather, God rest his soul, um, once or twice just to borrow some money to pay my rent. Yeah. They couldn't afford the rent. Um, so then how did you transition into finding the, the wholesale space and annuities, which my path wasn't that dissimilar to yours in the sense that I was working at Morgan Stanley and, and it, it was just a challenging environment and culture to be with. It, it was not a good fit for me in the long run, par partially driven by the environment that we found ourselves in, in the markets. But uh, quickly I was introduced to a firm, but how did you find the wholesale annuity space or how did it find you? Where, where the story started is I started utilizing insurance and the financial plans that I was building. Um, I okay. was, I was using, I was doing term insurance for younger people, investing the difference. But then as, as I was working with older people, I saw the value of permanent life insurance uh, as an estate planning tool. And back then we were talking about like Lincoln money guard type products, mm -hmm. the asset based hybrid products were really kind of, still around and uh, we we're having those discussions. And then for my retirees, I was utilizing deferred annuities with income riders. Right. Back then when you're on the phone telling someone, Hey, you know, we have something that can guarantee you 6%. Yes. The rest of the story is 6% as it relates to calculating income from a deferred annuity, but we were using it as just to get people pay attention. I mean, when we were on the phones, just getting people to pay attention to their financial plan, I mean, you hear these stories about people spend more time planning a family vacation than they do for their retirement. Right. Well, that, that was one of the big challenges. And I think it still is today. Uh, so utilizing insurance. And as I was utilizing insurance, especially on the annuity front, I got very frustrated as a young advisor, broker, if you will. Um, first of all, of those 16 people that I started with, Scott, I was the only one that graduated to the branch. Well, wow. all other 15 people, I'm not saying that I was doing great or anything. I was just surviving, but everyone yeah. else, and they were all ages and some of them are still in the industry today. So I'm not saying that they didn't succeed. They just didn't succeed at UBS. Um, and maybe you were just the biggest, the largest. Um, I think I was just the most stubborn and refused to give up. Yeah. I was going to say the willingness to be a glutton for punishment. Yes, I uh, I got taken to the whipping post by the uh, by the industry and the um, impacts of building a business in a deep bear market. Um, yeah, I, I uh, maybe that's one of the reasons where I found insurance. And I was working uh, with an independent general agency out of Boston uh, who had a selling agreement with UBS, and the guy that I was working with is this guy named Greg on the life side. And what really frustrated me about doing annuities uh, in the wirehouse space is that the wholesalers I worked with, they always had the best product. Like I'd call carrier A and guy who represents carrier A, carrier A always seemed to be the best product for whatever scenario I brought or talked with that. Mm -hmm. in about. Just like the wholesaler represented carrier B and then the same thing is the carrier, you know, the wholesaler represented carrier C. Mm -hmm. And then when I asked, 
XYZ wholesaler to explain to me the pros and cons of differences between A, B, and C, I get crickets. Yeah, they couldn't do it. They couldn't do it. It's like, well, wait a minute. And, and I actually had one telling no, no, Bill Bonk, that's your job as the advisor. We're just here to tell you how great our product is. It's your job to determine what's right for your client. And I'm like, I understand that. But if you can help me accelerate my due diligence process as it relates to filtering down all these all these options. I mean, because back then there were a ton of variable annuity companies, dozens right. of companies right. that were really competitive, not like today. Um, and there were all kinds of different riders and there was like this kind of like ongoing competitiveness. The carriers kept trying to up each other. It seemed like almost like on a weekly basis. It was a ton to keep track of. But on the life insurance side, when I worked with Greg, Greg had access as a general agent to kind of all of these uh, different carriers and products. And he could help me talk about my client, understand what strategy or what concept made sense what was the most effective, optimal way to utilize life insurance for that scenario? And then by putting the client first, putting the way we're going to use the insurance today and how it's going to be utilized in the future, then we can really understand what makes the most sense for that client. And I really admired that relationship with Greg. Saved me a lot of time, helped me help a lot of people. And then when I started looking at my compensation, for my time spent, I was making way more money and feeling way better about it for my clients with the insurance allocations in the portfolios. Mm -hmm. One day, uh, the owner of uh, the company Greg worked for called me and said, hey, we are looking, we're here that you're doing really good with annuities. And I think what happened is, is that early on in my career, I would encourage everyone who's listening to this to do this. And just like you were saying earlier, Scott, is I made time to talk with older advisors in the industry and ask them, just like you're asking me today, how'd you do it? How'd you grow the business? You know, what what worked for you? And I did that with some of the, you know, a lot of the advisors in the branch I was working with at UBS. And I got to give them credit. They were nice enough to tell me their story. Um, mm -hmm. And I think what I heard happen is some of them referred me to Greg's company to say, Hey, if you're looking for a young person to help you build an annuity book of business um, and teach advisors how to utilize annuities in the portfolio, Bill could be a good candidate for it. And at the time, and I don't normally reveal this Scott, but at the time the stress was starting to get to me like mm -hmm. this here in my head, or I don't have a whole lot of hair that happened right at that moment in my life. Like I, I literally remember showering at night after I get home from the gym and like looking at my hands and seeing hair in my hands because the stress was, it was, it was hurting me, man. Um, and so uh, uh, Greg's firm offered me a job, small base salary or whatever base salary, little help that UBS was giving me was long gone at that point. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh I got, they're like, look, we have all of these life insurance people uh, who uh, are doing life business with us and you can call them and help them do annuities. And that's when I met uh, Blair O'Connor, who's the former founder of Producer's Choice. And at the time, Producer's Choice was uh, forming a relationship with Greg's company. And there were like 21 different offices across the country within their organization. And they were putting a uh, an annuity person in each location. 
Uh, so they were looking for someone to cover the New England region. So make a long story short, I was like, all right, well, I'm picking up the phone, calling people all day as it is. You jumped uh, right in. I, 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 took, I, took, I took the opportunity. Um, I left my book of business with a, a guy that I trusted who had a CFP designation at UBS. He's still there, by the way. Um, Tom Wood, if you're listening to this man, good luck to you. You know, I hope, uh, I hope all my clients, former clients, aren't uh, driving you crazy, but they're really good people, and I'm, I'm sure they're doing great. So, uh, yeah, man, I, I took the job. I'll never forget my first day, Scott. So I, I show up, and uh, I'm my laptop, and I show up, and I meet with the receptionist. I think her name was Dawn or something at the time. And Dawn's like, ah, Bill, we don't have a desk for you. I'm like, uh, okay. So she literally walks me into this like small closet room, right? Like a broom closet. Like a broom closet, right? And there are banker's boxes, floor to ceiling. And what they did is they kind of like pushed them aside a little bit. And then there's like this little plastic fold-out table. And oh, then, my gosh. Until we get an office for you, this is kind of where you're going to be. So I really, no computer, no phone, nothing. No wow. business. You know, problem. it's very interesting how it's like we're, we're very resilient just as, as people and as a species. And certainly in our younger years, to your, to your earlier point of like remembering where you came from, it's a very humbling experience. And it, I, if we can hang on to that, it's very grounding for us as we progress. I agree. I, I, I will never now. So I'm going back. I started with them January of 2003. I'll never forget walking around the office trying to find a chair. I'm like, well, where do I start? Well, I'm not going to want to get a chair. You know, so I found a chair. Right. And then I remember going to the owner of the company and like, so um, I need a phone. He's like, yeah, 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 yeah. No, I know. I know. We need to get you a phone and I'm like, I at least, least need internet connection. Do you have Wi-Fi? Or I'm not even sure if Wi-Fi was a thing back then. Um, so I remember the IT guy, Bill, Bill Driscoll was his name. Great guy. I loved Bill. And I remember him like literally sitting there with a screwdriver poking a hole through the perforated ceiling to drop the to get you a cord, a broadband cord. <laughs> oh my gosh. Um, but I remember sitting there thinking, I'm like, oh no, how am I going to do this? And it brought me back to, all right, well, what's my experience with the annuity business? Mm -hmm. What did I want as an advisor? Well, what I wanted is I wanted what Greg did for me for life insurance. Why don't I be the guy to help support advisors for annuities, to help them give them transparency, to help them give them a consultative client first approach as it relates to looking at all the different products and not just as they stand today, but as they how you can utilize them most efficiently over time. And one of the core concepts that we were developing as an organization at the time was tax advantage distribution, showing people ways to, to position non-qualified money and annuities where you can create a lot of tax advantages for people as they use the assets. Mm -hmm. Back then, the annuity industry was going through a transition. We still Today have we call that what? What do we call that today? What's our marketing? We call that the bundle theory. Today. There you go. Well, we there also call it tax advantage distribution. 
Yeah. But it's important, it's important to put it in the context of what was going on in the annuity industry back then. Who that taught was, you this? Was it Blair that taught you this or was it Dwight or who was it that said this is going to change the world? So uh, three or four days after I found my chair and got my internet connection, uh, Blair flew out from Michigan to come sit down with me. And we went into the conference room and he looks at me and goes like, all right, kid. And I was a kid. I mean, I was probably, I don't know, 23 or four years old at this point. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I graduated from the training branch and I'm series seven licensed and I ran a book of business and I, you know, thought I knew everything. And Blair basically looks at me and goes, you don't know anything, nothing, you know, nothing. I'm going to show you how to sell annuities <laughs> the right way because the way you just explained to me, the way you were doing it before, yeah, that's wrong. He didn't use any explicatives either, right? No profanity. No, this 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 is a G-rated show, right, Scott? Right. Yeah. Well, a little bit. I mean, yeah, mostly. We're we're gonna keep it there, but I I think later that evening, after a few beers, there was some profanity that uh, might have come out of my mouth as I uh, kind of massaged my own ego after the meeting. But to Blair's credit, he did show me uh, the bundle theory, and he, and he was right. Uh, when you have an opportunity to put people's money into an annuity of some sort, putting it all into just one product mm -hmm. shouldn't always be the answer. And back then, um, there was a lot of commission-driven transactions going on. I mean, there was 10, 11, 12, 13% commissions that advisors were going for. And there was two-tiered annuities where you put money in, you can never get the money out lump sum, even if you, even if you died. You know, there's just no way of getting the money ever out. And that yeah, I call those Alcatraz Island annuities. Yeah. Which, on the converse side. So I'm, I was on the exact opposite side of the universe in the annuity sphere world, if you will, where a bundle theory would have been a very client friendly proponent of, and uh, <laughs> a very intelligent way to build products. Whereas I was born in, a, in an organization that pretty much just sold Allianz two-tiered annuities. And on the surface, they're amazing. They're incredible, right? There's so much sizzle and excitement and everything that goes with it. But what are the ramifications for all that sizzle? I used to say to people, I'm like, what's the point of a sizzling steak that when you cut into it, it's hollow? Bingo. And you don't know what you don't know until you're years later as a green pea being like, oh my gosh, these are Alcatraz Island annuities. Well, I think one of the big aha moments, I think for some advisors is, is that as you kind of go back and try to help people with those policies today, and you can't move the money to something that might be more suitable for them mm. from the client's perspective, then from the advisor's perspective, you can't put the money in someplace where you can get paid for your time. So the client feels trapped and the servicing advisor that's trying to help that client feels cheated. And really the one entity that made out the best in the whole deal was the insurance company. I mean, an annuity contract is just that it's a contract between the policyholder, the client, the insurance company, and those who, who, who were and are involved in the transaction itself. Mm. And if you think about it, it's like a pie. Everybody gets a piece of the pie. When I was working with Greg on the life insurance side, Greg made a very made a, always made it a point to make sure that the client got the biggest piece of the pie. Mm 
as we could. Mm -hmm. Put them first. Now, I'm not saying that Greg and I didn't get paid for our time. We sure did. But there are products out there that are built in favor of the client. There are products out there that are built in favor of the carrier. There are products that are built in favor of the agent, um, where it's just purely commission-driven. We were I, I still, even today, Scott, we look for products that are most in favor for the client, but the advisor can still make a living using within their practice. Mm -hmm. And the products have come a long way since then. Mm -hmm. like, I don't even think we could offer someone a two-tiered annuity today if we wanted to. Right, right. Um, yeah, through, through regulation, through obviously consumer demand, awareness, knowledge, institutional adoption, things like that. There's a lot of reasons for that. All that sort of stuff. Yeah, so you've told this story, I'm sure more than once. Uh, what is tax advantage distribution as a strategy? Well, it, it, it's a way of positioning non-qualified money into deferred annuities and doing it in such a way which keeps the client in the driver's seat as it relates to the taxation of the gain inside of it. So I, I personally find the easiest way to, to understand it is to put it in the context of an example. Uh, so if it's qualified money, IRA money, whether the money is in an annuity or in a stock or a bond or an ETF or a mutual fund, it's ordinary income coming out unless it's a Roth IRA. Um, so for today's discussion, we'll just kind of focus on non-qualified money. So say, for example, that you had 300 grand and it's non-qualified money. Say the client had it in a bond or the bank and they're just looking for another place to put it where they get tax deferred growth. Mm -hmm. Let's say you put that 300,000 into a tax deferred annuity, not something that's guaranteed for income. It's really more just for tax deferral and growth. Say you put it, and it doesn't matter whether it's fixed or variable, it doesn't matter. The, the it's a non-qualified deferred annuity. Correct. And say that 300 grows to 600,000. And now I'm going to use you as my test subject here, Scott. Let's say, for example, that you took a $200,000 withdrawal at that point. Surrender charges are over, the client's over 59 and a half. You put in 300,000, that's the basis. Now it's worth 600. You take 200 grand out, how's it taxed? As ordinary income, last in, first out. All right, so let's say, for example, that you're paying 25% on the dollar for tax, and so then you owe how much to the state and federal government? 12, 25% of 200,000, because 300,000 of it is gain. Right. So that would be $50,000. So 50 grand, right? Correct. And you net 250,000. Or excuse me, you net 150,000. Right. So you put 300 in, it grew to 600, you pull 200 out, pay 50 grand in tax, clients got 150 grand in their hand. Right? That's what I've got to use. Right. I want you to remember the number 150. I'm writing it down. There you go. Okay. So the idea is instead of putting 300,000 with one policy, say we put 100 grand with three different policies. Same outcome occurs. We now have three contracts. Let's say we do it all with the same insurance company, right? So you have three policies of carrier A, and they're each worth 200 grand. And now you take 200,000 out. Say you just surrender one of the policies. Now, how's the 200 grand tax, Scott? And I'll warn you, it's a trick question. Well, so I'm not gonna, ordinary, so let me just answer directly. The, the answer would be, <clears throat> by most, uh, well, you we previously determined that annuities are taxed on a last in first out basis, uh, thereby I have $100,000 of gain in each contract. So half of my distribution would be taxed. The other half would not be. 
So in this scenario, because we bought three policies with the same insurance company, that would be wrong. Ding, 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 right? Alert, alert, alert. Right. So there's something in the tax code called the aggregation rule. It's also referred to as the serial annuity law, which states that all non-qualified deferred annuity contracts bought per calendar year per social security number are aggregated as one from a tax perspective. So what's that called again? It's either called, there's two terms that float around out there. The first one is the serial annuity law. The second one is the aggregation rule. Interesting. And it is out there in education. And so for example, um, I've uh, taught the essentials of annuities course for the American college and it's in the book, believe it or not. Um, anyway, so what it basically it aggregates those three policies. So whether you surrendered one or took a piece out of each three, that whole $200,000 would be ordinary income. You wouldn't get any basis back. So the strategy to circumvent that would be to do three different carriers. So instead, okay, so we need to find carrier A, carrier B, carrier C, 100, 100, 100, then we get the tax advantage. So now let's properly run through the strategy to what right. I know. So now you put, now you buy three different policies, each with 100 grand a pop. Now they all double. So you have three policies with three different carriers, each worth 200,000. Now you surrender one of the policies because you want 200 grand. Now you're getting half of your principal cost basis back and half gain. So now you're only taxed on the 100,000, 25%. You're only paying 25 grand instead of 50 grand in taxes. And the client now has 175,000 to work with versus what was the number I asked you to remember? 150. So we literally just cut the client's tax in half. That doesn't mean that it's less taxable overall. It just means we've created a, a, a strategy. We've created, a, uh, we've positioned annuities in such a way which gives you more choice and control over the future taxation of the money. The reason this is relevant today and was very relevant back when I started in the industry is because the type of people putting money into annuities changed. It went from like the depression baby who never spent anything and they saved everything right to the baby boomer generation, which is like the squirrel that run around all, all summer and didn't save enough acorns. The annuity industry has changed to where it's now we're using the money that we put into these things. So if you take, bring it fast forward all the way to today, tax efficient distribution of assets is a hugely important topic. Right. And the challenge with utilizing the bundle theory is that a lot of the money that we're running into as advisors to manage is stuck in 401ks and IRAs and it's all pre-tax. Um, however, there is money out there on a non-qualified basis that you could utilize this strategy. But it brings up another thought. And that is if you have larger sums of money, I'm not saying that you every time you have a fifty or $75,000 ticket that you're breaking it up into multiple buckets. But when you start dealing with larger sums of money, say 200 or more, 300, 400, 500, the idea of diversifying amongst different carriers, the idea of laddering your surrender schedule. See, a fixed and index annuity really is just a bond issued by an insurance company. Mm-hmm. 
And when you think about bond laddering and you think about, all right, well, what are some of the concerns? And I use the word concern, not risk, that you have about placing money into a time horizon, like say a seven year surrender schedule, deferred fixed or indexed annuity is, well, what is the world going to be offering our clients seven years from now? Mm -hmm. Say you buy a 10-year surrender schedule, what's the world going to look like in 10 years? Or say you went the other way, five years. The point is, is that if you have a big chunk of money to deploy, putting it all into one time horizon maximizes your issues regarding reinvestment risk and interest risk, rate risk. So it makes sense to stagger the maturities of the money. And then if you're going to write different contracts, it makes sense to build a portfolio of annuities that have complementary crediting methods. So where some carriers might be good in a point-to-point -point cap, some carriers might be good in a point-to-point -point spread or participation rate, you can integrate monthly point-to-point. -point. Sure, it's a little more work, a little bit more paperwork, but by building a book of business this way, what happens is you have money coming due all the time that you can go off and replace. I mean, we have partnered carriers, Scott, where if, you, if a policy comes out of surrender, you can internally replace it and you get paid full compensation on it. And the carriers are actually set up to do this because once that surrender schedule and market value adjustment end on a deferred fixed or indexed annuity, the, the, the money isn't sticky to the insurance carrier anymore. So they want you to put it into a new surrender schedule so that they have more control over the asset and they are more willing to take risks with that money versus it could leave at any time. That's why you're going to get higher rates on fixed annuities than you would leaving one out of surrender. You're going to get higher potential on an index. I mean, there are some exceptions, like everything in the insurance industry. In the I world. mean, you think about, too, the other thing is how many volatility control strategies exist today? 80 plus, maybe over 100, right? Do you know the number? You keep pretty close. It's an absurd number. I mean, for the NAFA, the National Association of Fixed Annuities, does a monthly newsletter that shows you the performance year to date. So if anyone listening hasn't checked that out, you can contact Scott and I. We'll give you an example of what that performance is. But there's, there's an absurd amount. A certain amount. And to that end, none of them were offered not that many years ago, relatively speaking to the industry. I mean, th these are all assurgents were, were created out of this low interest rate environment as a way to try and create yield from 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 zero correct so like like one person told me early on in my career if you're going to put some money into mutual funds you don't need to spend months and months learning every single mutual fund in the industry if you did you're going to go out of business you have to pick the ones that make sense for you partner with people like bbim a producer's choice affiliate let us help you navigate through the the volatility controlled indexes that make sense because there's a lot of them out there scott that they're so diversified so volatility controlled that they don't move right and you can get 150 percent of something but if that something rhymes with a two percent return you're still only making three percent right you know i'd rather have 50 percent of 20 than 150 percent of two Right, exactly. And those are the things that just become very confusing to not just consumers, but also advisors as well. You know, you, you think about, look, innovation exists everywhere. For some reason, advisors, agents, uh, many of us in the industry, we kind of 
don't accept that as part of our selling process or educational process or the application of product solutions is probably the best way to put it when we're talking about annuities. So shorter duration means tranches of liquidity. Liquidity is a tremendous asset to consumers down the road because it gives them choices, liquidity, portability. Portability is a big one as it relates to, to innovation. But I mean, you think not. about what your your iPhone looked like 10 years ago, it's it's nothing what it looks like and how it operates today. Now, granted, we're not moving as fast in, as that regard, but it's a very good example of the fact that what exists today isn't going to be what is available five to 10 years from now. So I think there's, there's two points there to reiterate. One is that it's probable that five, seven, 10 years from now, There'll be new things that you can put clients' money into in the fixed and indexed annuity world that will offer more potential and upside than what you're seeing today. Certainly new innovation. That for sure has been true as I look back 5, 10, 15 years from now. Mm-hmm. More opportunity put the client's money in a lump sum position to make the insurance industry compete for it again. The more opportunity you can shop them a better deal and the more opportunity you can shop better compensation for the advisor. I mean, it it really is a win-win thing from that perspective. And here's the other aha moment. Even today, if you're in a competitive situation where if you're working, if you're trying to position three, four, five, six, seven hundred thousand dollars into an annuity scenario, the, the probability is that there are competitors. People do shop around. And if you're sitting there saying things to clients like, look, I'll show you a way to cut your tax liability in half. I'll show you ways to diversify your holdings where all your eggs aren't in one basket mm-hmm. and show you a smarter way to do this that gives you increased liquidity. People understand that. People don't understand the difference between the Barclays dynamic index and the JP Morgan mosaic index. I would argue that a high percentage of the advisors utilizing these tools don't have an even deep dove either of those things anyway. And right. they have the big scary thing is, is that after you buy a policy with these managed volatility indices, the carriers can change the index after you buy it. They can remove it, which is a whole nother podcast thing for another time, Scott. Right. The aha moment is putting how you're going to help that client, not just today, but how you're going to help them in the future, utilize and optimize the use of annuities. And it can differentiate you. And I've actually had advisors in the street that I've taught this to, we've practiced, we've won big cases. And then years later, I've talked to them about something else and they actually admit to me, just lost a million dollar case yesterday, Bill. And I'm like, oh, as a wholesale, you're always initially like, well, geez, how can we give me a chance to compete for it? But mm-hmm. I regress and I go back and I say, well, geez, you know, Mr. Advisor, what happened? He's like, I had my one product that I really liked that I was trying to put the million bucks into and the other advisor had a multi-product approach and the other advisor won it because they weren't putting all the eggs in one basket. And I forgot, I forgot. Mm-hmm. And you know, that, that, that's pretty impactful. I thought. Yeah, absolutely. That's great insights. The bundle theory, AKA tax advantage distribution strategy. Where can people go to get to learn more? Well, I think the first thing is, is is when you're deploying insurance within a portfolio, I think the best piece of advice I could give anyone who's listening is just be a human being and 
help people understand the use of these things, the features and benefits, and not try to get caught up too much in the sizzle. Um, you know, bonuses have a place, but then they don't, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah. I would say, you know. And I, I think to, 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 to really, really stress listening, really listen to the words that consumers are saying and accept this type of a product solution you know, kind of benchmarked in safety and and more modest returns, fair, fair, fair to stay. But in many cases, that's 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 a refreshing place to be for consumers. It is. I think the 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 ultimate art form in the financial services advisory space is being able to align yourself with your client help them understand that you're on their side and you're trying to do what's in their best interests. Take a fiduciary approach, be responsible for what you're positioning and educate people in such a way where they see why it makes sense to do what needs to be done mm -hmm. and, and cultivate the conversation where it becomes the client's idea to do it. And you're just enabling them to do what they need to do. You know, I, I, as soon as the client is the client's the one who decides to do it, then we're facilitating what they want to have done. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I would say contact your local uh, regional director of producer's choice. If you don't know who your uh, regional director is, you can access that information on the uh, producer's choice website. Uh, for those of you who are in the New England, Southern Florida region, you can call me directly. If you're anywhere that touches the Pacific Ocean, Scott would happily help you. Um, but we, we were available and uh, you should utilize your resources. Not enough advisors do. Good parting words. Thank you for your time. Thanks for the opportunity, Scott. Great, good time. So, the website is www.producerschoicenetwork.com as, as Bill suggested. And our the 800 number is 800-238-0448. For those interested, Bill, what's your phone number? Uh, 781-538-5925. Again, 781-538-5925. And our website address currently, but we're going to be relaunching it, is uh, BillBlancInsuranceMarketing.com. Come check us out. Cheers. Till next time. Cheers. Thanks, Scott. Thank you for tuning in to today's episode. Please subscribe, like, share, leave a comment or review. Be sure to check us out on social media at Optimized Advisor Podcast. Till next time.